This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, December 21st, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. We are thrilled to have you along every weekday between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern and around the clock for free on demand on our podcast if you can't listen over the course of these next three hours. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Lots of content right there, many ways to listen live, which, of course, we encourage you to do, or to grab the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media, at Guy Benson Show. Twitter and Instagram, you can follow us there. We encourage you to do that. Busy show ahead today, Josh Krasauer of Axios. He will be here talking politics later in the hour. Chad Pergram, our man on Capitol Hill, will be at the top of the next hour with a few different big stories percolating on Capitol Hill ahead of the break. We will ask him about the Ukrainian president addressing Congress in a joint session tonight, sort of the tick-tock of that. We'll also talk to him about my opening monologue subject coming up here in just a moment, which is this huge spending bill that they're going to try to pass through Congress to end the year. Ahead of next year's spending. That's the point here. Later on in the program, Sean Reyes will join us. He's the Republican Attorney General out in Utah. He wants to talk about Twitter, but sort of in a way that we haven't focused on very much here. Under Elon Musk, Twitter has really ramped up its collective efforts to crack down on the exploitation of children, including child pornography and that type of imagery and material. That, I think, is unambiguously a good thing that the Musk regime has undertaken already. And Attorney General Reyes has been working with them on this front. He wants to talk about it. It's a huge problem, not just on Twitter, but also on other apps and social media platforms like TikTok, for example. Sean Reyes will be here later on in the program. And then Bill Malugin, our colleague down at the border, that crisis still going, a slight delay or reprieve from the Supreme Court. It looks temporary. Uh, What impact is that having on the ground, if any? We'll ask him about that coming up in our final hour here on the program today. All right, let's talk about this omnibus spending bill, which I know is not the most exciting thing in the world, but it is very frustrating, I would say, to watch our government at work, quote-unquote. This is how it goes. The government doesn't really do its job. Congress delays and squabbles all year and then up against the clock with various cliffs and shutdowns looming, a very small handful of people get together in a room somewhere and they produce some monstrosity 
of legislation, like a giant bill, thousands of pages, and they just dump it in everyone's lap. They say, okay, here we go. This is our spending. You've got a little while. Go read it if you can. Good luck. And then we're going to vote. Okay, thanks. This is no way to govern even a small city, let alone the United States of America. Now, look, I understand. I've seen some of the speeches and some of the press releases from Senator Mitch McConnell. I know some people on the right flank of the Republican Party hate McConnell. They think he's awful. I disagree. I think he's been a very good, smart, effective, rational leader. I'm a fan. But I will say that I am not fully convinced by his explanations. Look, I I read what he has to say. He makes some fair points. He goes through and talks about Republican priorities that are met in this omnibus giant spending bill and some of the things that the Democrats wouldn't want that got in there anyway. And, you know, the military is getting a big boost, but other non-veteran domestic spending in terms of real dollars is, you know, coming down a little bit. They've got their talking points. On the other side, you've got people digging in and saying, look at this waste, look at that waste. What about this? What about that? And I think some of them are really bad. Right? Some of the things being dredged up in this thing are really bad. I am not of the opinion, I'll talk about this later on in the show, that more aid for the Ukrainians is a bad thing or a waste of our money. I don't agree with that at all. I think that's a good use of our money, and I support it. I think that's a weak argument. There are plenty of good arguments, though, against some of the stuff jammed in to this giant, disgusting bill. Senator Rand Paul, the other Kentucky senator, who's obviously famous for being a fiscal hawk who likes to vote against basically all of this stuff, he put out a little night-before-Christmas-type performance about the spending bill. Here's just a little taste of it. I thought this was relatively well done in Cut 21. The moon on the breast of the new-fallen snow gave the luster of midday to objects below. When what to my wondering eyes should appear but a 4,000-page omni with endless debt year after year. With a little old driver, so lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. More rapid than eagles, his coursers they came, and he whistled and shouted and called them by name. Now McConnell, now Schumer, now Pelosi and Vixen, on Biden, on Stupid, on Dumber and Blitzen, to debt, to bankruptcy, to free money for all. Now dash away, dash away, more cash for all. Kimberly Strassel at the Wall Street Journal had a lengthy Twitter thread about this last night. And here's what she wrote. The omnibus is one of the ugliest, least transparent bits of lawmaking I've ever seen. And that's saying something. It isn't just the spending, though the new... Domestic numbers are gross, given the trillions spent in the past few years. That's the other thing, as an aside. Like, we still have really bad inflation, right? I mean, that should be one of the biggest issues impacting spending decisions, but I think for a lot of people it's just sort of like, all right, business as usual here. She says, it's also that Congress, in a new trick, is attaching dozens of pieces of standalone legislation to this omnibus. Retirement changes, public lands management, health care policy, cosmetics regulation, electoral count act changes, horse racing rules, 
Everyone deserves a full debate and a roll call vote so that Americans can see where their representatives stand. Instead, this monstrosity is cooked in a back room, and members can claim they had no choice but to vote against a shutdown, thus ducking accountability. Not that any members will have time to read this 4,155 pages of bad policy, obscene spending, and self-serving pork and earmarks. They'll just vote and go home for Christmas. Your government at work. GOP and D's are just as bad as each other. And I think on this stuff, sometimes there's an element of truth to that last part. Philip Klein at National Review wrote it this way, and I agree with this, because I know some people are hung up on certain details. Should we be spending X on this priority? Should we be spending Y on that priority? What about the military? What about the shutdown? The process reeks. The process sucks. This is no way, as I said earlier, to run a serious country, and yet it's exactly the way that they do it in Washington now basically every year. So Philip Klein writes this, Just two days before an expected Senate vote, congressional leaders cooked up an outrageous $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill, demanding that lawmakers open wide and swallow its 4,100 pages whole so everybody can leave town for the year. This is a scandal, he writes. It is not a scandal to be added to the salacious and shocking catalog of notorious Washington scandals, but a scandal precisely because what is happening has become completely ordinary. This is the way business is conducted in Washington. The scandal is that it is so unremarkable. The scandal is that it will be repeated again and again, no matter which party is in charge. And he's right. There's an appropriations process. I know this starts to get dull. People's eyes glaze over when people start ranting about regular order and that sort of thing. But there is an appropriations process where committees work through spending bills. They mark it up. They debate it. You go from the committee to the next step. There's a way to do this. Now, the top-line number probably ends up being too big for my preferences almost all of the time as a fiscally conservative person. But at least in the process of going through all of that and the committees and the debate and the openness and a bunch of votes, politicians and lawmakers can be accountable. Things can be improved. Right? There can be rational discussion about what our national priorities should be and shouldn't be and how these bills ultimately get fashioned and they end up in their final form. Instead, you know, rather than going through the normal, it's not even really normal anymore, but what should be the normal process of regular order, instead what we get is this lurching from one potential crisis to the next one, They know that there's some deadline looming. They know that everyone wants to go home for Christmas, and then, you know, they've been through a a long election cycle, and people want to get back to their families and their constituents and so on and so forth. And so a very small group of people do this, like, in secret, and then they drop the whole thing on Congress and say, all right, uh, we're going to do this now. You better vote for it. 
And it's a cynical and I think very dysfunctional way of doing it. Unfortunately, it's been rewarded enough that now this is the new normal. That is the point. And Phil Klein was saying that is the scandal. I'm sure I can find small and big things in the spending bill that I like. And that could be correctly construed as at least relative victories for conservatives. And McConnell's operation, they're out there highlighting that stuff. I get it. Then there's plenty of other stuff, as I said, where you dive in and you look at what is in there, what isn't in there, and you would scratch your head or tear your hair out. That's often going to be the case when you look at a giant amount of federal spending, no matter how it's packaged. But doing it this way at this time as this almost like annual ritual is just so distasteful. I saw that earlier in the week a number of House Republicans put out a letter threatening Senate Republicans saying, if this omnibus passes, we are going to retaliate against any of the Republican senators who vote for it. We are going to hold up their legislative priorities in the new Congress. Senator so-and-so wants something too bad, tough. We're going to vote it down just as retribution for the omnibus. Now, that did not have its desired effect on Republican senators, who I think, and some of the reporting is, they were angered by this and decided they were going to double down and vote to at least begin the debate on the omnibus in larger numbers. As a big middle finger screw you back to the threats from House Republicans, like, okay, uh, we see the threat and this is our response. Go screw yourself. And what the Senate Republicans are saying is House Republicans, first of all, underperformed in the election in terms of the size of the majority. Of course, Senate Republicans did as well. And because the House majority next year is going to be so thin, you've already got all this drama around whether the Republicans will be able to elect their own speaker in a non-chaotic and embarrassing way on January 3rd. So some of the upper chamber Republicans are saying, we don't think House Republicans are going to be able to govern over the next two years. They can't even rally around the speaker that they overwhelmingly decided would be their leader in, con- in conference. We had McCarthy on, what, last Friday. 85% of members voted for him to be their leader. But, what, like half a dozen guys are saying, no, uh, we're going to never vote for him, so we don't like it. They don't really have any sort of viable alternative, but they're saying we're digging in our heels, we're not doing it. And this type of thing could repeat itself over and over again. A small number of people holding everything up. And based on the early indications, I'm not so sure the House Republican majority is going to be a functional majority all that often. And so what Republican senators are saying is if the House Republicans aren't going to be able to govern and they're making threats against us, Well, we might as well pass a spending bill so these people don't have all that power put in their lap next year because they're not going to be able to do anything with that power or the, you know, the nominal ostensible power. Now, I'm not sure that's a great reason to then say, let's vote for the omnibus. That's just part of the thinking that goes behind this, I think, and goes into this from some of the Senate Republicans. It is not terribly auspicious when it comes to what to expect over the next couple of years. Temper your expectations for Republicans on Capitol Hill and for Democrats because at least, thank goodness, there'll be divided government and it won't be all Democrats all the time. We saw what that got us. Can't get worse than that. But 
so far, I mean, it's like, I think, early stage infighting of what we might see play out in 2023 and 2024, certainly next year. So, you know, I can, I, I could bring experts on and guests to rail against some of the stuff that's in the omnibus. We could have other people who are saying, well, actually, if you look at this, that, and the other, it's actually pretty good. We're still in the minority. It, it could be a lot worse. These are some relative wins, and there would be some truth to all of it. What I find so offensive and just fetid, it stinks to high heaven, is how they roll it up into 4,000 pages, dump it on everyone and say, we've got a few days, you can't even read it, now go vote. None of you have seen it. You haven't been part of this. We've just decided, vote. $1.7 trillion after all this other spending, too, and our inflation problem that is still with us. It's just a joke. And it's not just a purely partisan joke, either. That's what's so frustrating. More on that later with Chad Pergram. A lot to get to on The Guy Benson Show. Please stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm Guy Benson. So are you ready for this? We've mentioned in the last few weeks that the Washington, D.C. City Council, in all of its wisdom has done a number of things. For example, they have announced and passed a bill, so-called criminal justice reform, that would reduce criminal penalties for a number of major felonies of violent crimes such as carjackings. Carjackings have skyrocketed in D.C. recently. And the D.C. City Council wants to reduce penalties for uh, for carjacking and a number of other crimes. They've also extended, quote-unquote, voting rights to... Basically, any warm body who's been in the city for a couple weeks, including illegal immigrants and foreign diplomats. Like, you could be a CCP spy working out of the Chinese embassy or Russia or whatever, and all of a sudden you can vote in D.C. elections. That's the D.C. City Council. Well, here's their latest one. How's this for a headline? D.C. Council considers upping hotel tax to boost tourism. They want to attract more tourists to D.C. by forcing them to pay more to stay in D.C. at hotels. That's just some galaxy brain stuff right there. They say they can get more tax dollars to then spend on advertising for D.C. Like, oh, it's just temporary, and the tourism hasn't fully rebounded. Well, maybe it's because of all of the crime and the crazy draconian COVID stuff that D.C. implemented. By the way, the city council just passed this legislation. (laughs) 
Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. As we get closer and closer to Christmas. With us now is Josh Krasauer, senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, happy holidays. Happy Hanukkah to you. Thanks, Guy. Merry Christmas to you. And I'm looking forward to to a very very, uh, busy holiday uh, season, at least the week before the holidays. Yep, there's going to be a lot still to come here. And let's start with, oh boy, there's a whole grab bag of stories that I want to get to with you. Here's an interesting one. Out of Georgia... A story in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution about Stacey Abrams and her prodigious campaign spending and some of the decisions that they made and what they did with donors' cash. I mean, she kind of became this big celebrity for doing the whole election denial thing on the left. They loved her for it. They showered her with money. She then went out and lost by eight points in the rematch against Brian Kemp. It wasn't because she didn't have enough cash. She had huge amounts of it. She burned through all of it, and now I guess they're in debt by like a million dollars. Talk about just some of the hubris of that campaign, some of the odd choices that they made. And it's just sort of astounding that after all of that, plus an eight-point loss, they're in the hole by seven figures. Yeah, the problem for Stacey Abrams is that she treated her campaign more like a cause than a campaign. And, you know, by by appealing to every progressive priority instead of focusing on the moderate voters that win elections in Georgia, not only did she lose by eight points, but they wasted money on uh, – I mean, <laughs> it was pretty funny reading the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, story. Uh, you know, there was a swag truck that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. They rented a house in an expensive Atlanta neighborhood for TikTok creators. None of this stuff was, was going to be helpful in her getting the votes she needed to win an election. But they, they were bringing in money from national donors, not in Georgia, but in Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. And, and, and her, her campaign totally lost lost a track of what it takes to win, and, and it became a cult of personality campaign instead of a, a campaign that, that is, is effective. Uh, so, I mean, look, I, I think this is the last one. Well, I, I don't think a lot of Democrats are going to be pining for Stacey Abrams to, to run for office, whether it's president or governor of Georgia or even dog catcher in, in Georgia anymore, because she underperformed almost every Democrat on, on a ballot uh, in, in her own election. And look, even going back to 2018, I always thought that her campaign was massively overhyped, just like Beto O'Rourke's campaign that year was overhyped and over over uh, learned. And uh, look, she she was in a Democratic wave election and she couldn't win in Georgia. And, and obviously, she lost by a much bigger mar- margin in 2022. Uh, this should be the end of Stace, of the Stacey Abrams hype machine. And uh, good riddance, because she wasted a lot of her donors' money uh, apparently with the campaign. You have an analysis at Axios. The GOP's four must-win counties for 2024. I mean, how'd you narrow it down to four? I mean, there's there's probably you could point to two dozen crucial counties. You've boiled it down to four. 
Uh, how did you make those choices? What are the counties? Talk about the significance there. I know it feels early, but it it really isn't. Lessons need to be actively learned right now, I think, for the Republicans ahead of the new cycle that's already really underway. Yeah, it, it's not. I mean, you could name dozens of counties, but what I focused on in the point of this, this story was to focused on the fact that Republicans underperformed in the in the suburbs where they used to do quite well not that long ago. And and these are areas of, of these battleground states in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and, and yes, Wisconsin, where uh, you're Republican. The, the, the opportunity for Republicans to do much better was missed in 2022, but could be realized in 2024. And, you know, number one on the list was Bucks County, uh, Pennsylvania, where you have a Republican congressman who's won election after election against all types of Democrats, but where at the national level and even the, the, the statewide level, folks like Trump and Mehmet Oz and, 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 and certainly Doug Mastriano got, got trounced in, in, in an area that has always been pretty friendly to Republican candidates. Pat Toomey won there twice. Uh, but, you know, Cobb County, Georgia, that's not a county that I don't th- – I think it's tough for Republicans to win Cobb County outside of Atlanta, but they certainly can make it really close, as Governor Kent did in, in this recent election. And, and, you know, Herschel Walker got, got dominated uh, in, in, in that suburb that used to be, you know, Newt Gingrich's home base not that long ago. Uh, so the other, the other two, two big ones, uh, Brown County, Wisconsin, right around the Green Bay area, which is a, maybe a slightly more Republican suburb than the other three, and Maricopa County, Arizona, in the Phoenix and, and outline area of Phoenix, uh, which, as we know, has become sort of the epicenter of this election denialism uh, movement in the state, where you have folks like Carrie Lake and uh, the Secretary of State candidate blaming the, the biggest county uh, in, in the state for mishandling their elections without much evidence, without a whole lot of evidence on their side. Uh, but that is a county that Republicans always have won by pretty big margins until recently, and it's one they're going to need to win back to, to win the state of Arizona. Well, it seems like there were some real problems on Election Day in Maricopa County in terms of, you know, the the voting machines and there were delays and that sort of thing. That's different than, you know, fraud or someone being robbed, right? Those I think you can talk about a a system that needs a lot of changes and is extremely inefficient and, and flawed without saying that the election was stolen. And, I, of course, you know, some people are going – uh, full bore with that conspiracy theory. I think you can actually make uh, a more discreet and correct point if you're more careful about it. Uh, that's not the direction that she's decided to go. So those are just, I think, four interesting points to consider where the Republicans have to either expand their margin of victory or get closer in terms of their margin of defeat if they're going to want to win at the national level, win those states, have the presidential nominee, whoever it is, carry those counties and have a better chance of carrying the state uh, in for extremely important states moving forward. Now, one of the candidates, one of the nominees might be Donald Trump. He's the only declared candidate in either party so far. Um, I think that's a less sure bet than it ever has been before, but he's at least one of the front runners for good reason as the former president with a very strong and committed, passionate base. The House yesterday, one of these committees, they had a debate and a vote to release Trump's tax returns. Uh, These are sort of like, you know, the Democrats on their way out the door trying to do as much as they can here. Uh, Do you think that there's a lot of political implication here? Uh, Do you think that this has any sort of real impact? What do you make of what was sort of like a a moderate-sized political story in D.C. yesterday? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of the holy grail for congressional Democrats to 
uh, embarrass the former president by showing that he was not quite as talented of a businessman as he claimed to be and not quite as wealthy of a, of a businessman who he, that he claimed to be and, and that he didn't pay tax. I mean, there were several years where he actually didn't, didn't know any taxes, didn't, didn't pay uh, many taxes at all. Now, you know, look, I, I, I don't think this ever was really politically powerful. Uh, I think most voters don't don't like paying taxes, and no matter how wealthy you are, and and if he did things legally, that happens to a lot of rich people and a lot of people with with uh, wealthy interests in in the country. So, look, I think there are, there's so many fish to fry for for Trump or for Democrats looking to investigate Trump. The fact that he uh, you know got away with not paying a whole lot of taxes several years in the last five or six years, I, I don't think it's at the top of the list. But this is something that they you know they were trying to get a hold of the taxes, they wanted to release them. This is something that was a long time coming. I don't think it moves the political needle nearly, at least not nearly as much as a whole lot of other things. That are, no, I also think it's just there. sort of like a, it's a base play, right? The the Democratic base has been frothing at the mouth for this type of thing to get the tax returns, release the tax returns. It's sort of like a little boutique issue in certain mostly online sort of lefty circles. So I think that's what they're doing while they have the authority to do it, while they have the majority. They're like, yeah, let's uh, let's sort of empty the clip on some of this stuff before we leave and before, you know, we no longer control the agenda in these committees. I think that's also part of it. Meanwhile, President Biden, who, you know, I guess the rumors are and the reports are that he is getting closer and closer to make a yes decision on running for re-election. I still have my doubts, but the reports are that he's really feeling boosted and buoyed and his wife is now fully behind it and all of that. There was an analysis I saw at FoxNews.com about how few interviews President Biden gave in 2022 with journalists. He only had seven sit-down interviews, formal sit-down interviews with journalists. It's just a fraction of what he had done previously and certainly other presidents had done. I don't think this is good news when it comes to accountability and accessibility and presidents and people in positions of huge power answering questions as they should. But I also get the feeling that, you know, given the results of the election and the Democrats, at least historically speaking, had a good night uh, compared to what it could or even should have been, just like in 2020, where he just camped out in the basement and didn't really do that much and just said, hey, it's me or that guy. That was successful in 2020. In some of these key races where candidates were closely associated with Trump, voters just said, you know, I guess we don't care about all the failures of Joe Biden. We don't like what he's done. He's done a bad job, but we're not going to vote for this other party instead. And it just seems like, you know, another vindication politically of ultimately things that I think are harmful, whether it's, you know, the meddling in the Republican primaries that they did to boost Trumpy candidates who denied the election to make it easier for them to beat them in the general. That was politically successful. I still think the wrong thing to do and, and bad for the country, but they put party over country and did that, and, and it worked for their party this time. And this is another one where it's like, all right, let's just duck as much accountability as possible. Let's not talk to journalists very much at all. And it's hard I think for the White House communications shop to look at the results from November and say, hey, maybe we did this wrong. If anything, they might clam up even more. Um, maybe this is a short-term benefit to the Democrats again. Again, I just don't think it's, it's necessarily good for the health of our democracy. Yeah, it's not. And yeah, I would like, as a journalist, would like to see more uh, interviews, more debates, more more public appearances by our politicians. Look, I, I, I actually I'm a little more optimistic uh, insofar as that goes for 2024 guy, because I think the whole Biden strategy, even in 2020, was sort of premised on the fact that 
everyone hates Trump and, you know, you can play the prevent defense, politically speaking, against someone like Trump. If Trump is not the Republican nominee, and he could be, but there are a lot of other possibilities out there, I don't think that strategy would work. I actually think that uh, Biden would lose support uh, against a more vibrant, more vigorous, and, and better debating candidate like a Ron DeSantis or anyone else, frankly, in that Republican field. So, you know, it's easy. It's, it's kind of like, you know, you, when you're up by a few touchdowns and if you're a football team, you play prevent defense and maybe you give up a couple touchdowns but still win the game in the end. I, I, don't, I don't think they have the time on the clock. They don't think they have the, the opposition. that they, they don't have the opposition that they're hoping for. And that strategy doesn't work. And I, I don't think Biden can use the excuse of COVID. And I think Trump if Trump is not the opponent, that will be a strategy that would backfire for the Democrats. We are going to talk more about this with Chad Perkram coming up later in the show, and I gave some of my own thoughts on it at the top, this omnibus spending battle that's underway. I mean, the whole thing, to me, stinks to high heaven. I hate the process. I strongly dislike a lot of the substance. I feel like this becoming the new normal, this is how they fund the government, you know, with these crazy cliffs at the end of every year and these giant bills that no one reads. It's just, to me, extremely bad governance. It is a now bipartisan tradition. Do you get the sense, Josh, that this is going to pass close to its current form and we're just going to do it again? I think it will. And it's a, you're absolutely right, Guy, that this is you know, no way to run a government, but it's the only way we've, we've been doing it for the last handful of years. Uh, beyond that, really, uh, it's, it literally it's like it's like studying for your final and never showing up for class and then doing everything in the last day and, and hoping to get a, a passing grade. I mean, look, there's a lot of necessary funding uh, for the government to make sure it stays open for Ukraine. Then uh, we're going to be hearing uh, President Zelensky tonight giving an address before Congress. There's a lot of important money in there to fund the government to make, make things work. But there's also a lot of junk, a lot of waste, a lot of problematic uh, allocations of resources. And it's not been debated. We haven't had a chance to really even have this uh, conversation about what, what what's going to be uh, in this, this you know, mega omnibus package. So, look, I, it's the way we've been doing it for, for, for the last you know a number of years. But uh, it is not. I think if, if you told anyone if there were aliens coming from outer space and they were you're telling them this is how we operate the government, this is how we fund the government every year, they, they, they'd be apoplectic, right? This is this is sort of a weird way. Well, of even doing if you just went back what, a, a number of years, a couple decades, and got together the former leaders of both parties, saying, "By the way, this is how Congress does it now," they'd I think be pretty grossed out by it, which is why so many voters are so grossed out by it, and. People show up in front of the microphones and sort of pretend like they've created some sort of great compromise and, oh, it's imperfect, but we – and then people sort of just grit their teeth and roll their eyes, vote on some amendments, and then they, you know, go home for Christmas. It's just – it's just ridiculous. And, uh, you know, here we go again. Uh, lastly, you mentioned Zelensky coming to D.C. Uh, this first sort of broke out in the news – and got reported yesterday, leaked that Zelensky was coming. There's no way to keep wraps on it all the way up to the minute. I mean, you're going to have hundreds of people in that chamber going to go listen to him speak this evening at 730. Uh, I'm going to have a few more of my thoughts on that personally later on. Uh, I just wonder how it strikes you. I mean, I don't think we've seen Zelensky out of that country really at all since the war started. At least I'm not remembering an example of that. Here he is you know, dramatically coming to Washington what kind of reception are you expecting for him, Josh? And what do you think about the politics of this from his perspective and then also just from you know the U.S. perspective? Well, this is quite a moment. This is his first visit uh, to 
outside of Ukraine since, since the war began. Uh, and, and you can see with the, the photos with President Biden, uh, with the, the, the conversation he had in the White House talking about uh, coming from the, the war zone, the war front in eastern Ukraine, and handing the president a gift from one of, one of the generals. I mean, these, these are very moving pictures and moving moments, um, and I think they won't be quickly forgotten. Uh, you know, there's wide bipartisan support to, to, to help Ukraine fight off Russia. That, that, that's the reality. I, I think the risk, if there's any political risk, if there's any political implications, is that there is this small number of, uh, you know, right-wing reactionary Republicans who, you know, the Matt Gateses of the world, if you will, that, that like to almost troll folks by being against Zelensky, by being against uh, the Ukrainian cause uh, against Russia. And though, though, if you go on social media, if you go on Twitter, they, they, these folks seem a lot larger of a constituency than they actually are. But there are a handful of, of Republicans that express those sen- sentiments. Um, and if they end up disrupting the speech or create, saying things that are controversial, then, then that could cause the Republican Party you know, some problems. But uh, you know, if you look at the polling, the, the support for Ukraine is, is widespread in both parties. There is a faction on the, on, on the right that is, is, is the outlier. But um, you know, Mitch McConnell, uh, the leadership in, in, in the Republican Party has been pretty stalwart in favor and, and in support of uh, the, the Zelensky mission. Josh Krauschauer is senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Josh, this is the last time you and I will speak before the new year. So we thank you so much for your time always on this show. We look forward to many more discussions in the months and weeks ahead. And 2023 is uh, here before we know it. And that means 2024 is here before we know it. Uh, We really do appreciate it, Josh. Have a great holiday season. Thanks, Guy. And again, have a Merry Christmas and, and a Happy New Year to all the audience. Thank you. And likewise, we'll take a break. We'll be right back. It is the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We are back. Here's a story out of New Jersey that is just absolutely nuts and maddening. The Passaic County Public Schools have put out a message from the superintendent saying that effective today, everyone in the public school community will be required once again to wear masks. We've talked ad nauseum about how mask mandates don't work, how they actually have significant downside for kids. But I guess in the Passaic County Public Schools in New Jersey, they've learned absolutely nothing over the course of the pandemic. And as Justin Spiro, who's a school social worker, points out, he says effective today, four-year-olds in Passaic will be forcibly masked during speech therapy, but adults right down the block at any of the bars around Passaic County can get drunk, packed in these bars, no masks required. It is anti-science, it is anti-child, and it's back in northern New Jersey. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We are glad to have you here. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, that is our airtime every day, every weekday at least. And then when the show's over, we have a podcast, the whole show on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com is the one-stop shop for all of it. You can also get the podcast at FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. 
Give us a follow if you'd like, some bonus content there. You can also follow me personally on those same platforms, at Guy P. Benson. Let's bring you a Fox News alert here. Big day on Wall Street. The Dow up 526 points at the close, ending the day at 33,376. So the roller coaster ride continues. And that market update, sponsored by our friends and partners at Americans for Prosperity. They are committed to empowering every American to realize their own American dreams all across the country by being champions of policies that expand freedom and opportunity. We love AFP. I'm proud to be associated with them. You can find out more, americansforprosperity.org. Joining us now is Chad Pergram, senior congressional correspondent for Fox News. Up on Capitol Hill, he's very busy today as it's a very eventful day up there. Chad, it's great to have you back. Happy holidays to you. Guy, thanks for having me. I just saw you on the TV side of things with Neil Cavuto, sort of setting the stage for a pretty dramatic evening ahead. I know that President Zelensky of Ukraine and our President Joe Biden will have a joint press conference coming up later this hour. We're going to be monitoring that here on the show. And then tonight, the main event, a joint session address. This happens occasionally where foreign leaders come in and talk to Congress I would imagine, given the circumstances, this one is poised to be unique and pretty memorable. Absolutely. It's a joint meeting of Congress, which is usually what they call it when they receive a foreign dignitary here. A joint session of Congress is when they meet to certify the Electoral College and when the president uh, comes to deliver his State of the Union address. It looks basically the same. It's very similar, but usually for a foreign dignitary. Now, Petro Poroshenko, uh, who was the leader of Ukraine, he spoke to a joint meeting of Congress and asked for aid in 2014. And, Guy, this morning I was going through some of his remarks, and it was striking. You know, this was just after, you know, about six, eight years, about six years after uh, Russia had rolled through, uh, uh, you know, parts of Georgia. Uh, they had also then uh, moved into Crimea, and he was saying the writing is on the wall here. We need assistance from the United States. And if you go fast forward here into 2022, what Petro Poroshenko was talking about played out, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine over the winter. Now, uh, this is very similar. You know, it says that, you know, history does not always, uh, you know, repeat itself, it repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Mm-hmm. We've had wartime leaders come to Washington to address a joint meeting of Congress around Christmas before, 1941, Winston Churchill, December 26th, the day after Christmas. Now, keep in mind what happened just about three weeks before Pearl Harbor was bombed. Uh, The United States Congress passed a resolution to get the United States involved uh, in World War II. And basically, Churchill's message was, uh, this is what you're in for. Thank you for helping us. We need more assistance. Now, granted, the U.S. is kind of executing a a proxy war here with uh, Russia, uh, you know, through NATO. You know, there are no troops there, but we're arming Ukraine. And this is very controversial inside the building. You have almost all Democrats supporting whatever Ukraine wants. Most Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, some others, saying we need to make sure that they have the aid. They're very concerned that the Republican House next year will take a dim view of some of this. And I just, uh, you know, had played in, in the report on the television side a soundbite from Tommy Tuberville, the Republican senator from Alabama, who said, you know, maybe don't give them $45 billion in one fell swoop, maybe every month or so. And I would like to see how you could get a bill every month passed through Congress to, to aid Ukraine. I mean, there's a lot of members in the Republican Party who says we should take care of the United States first. You have others like Mitch McConnell guy who say if we don't 
address this crisis in Ukraine. It's going to be the rest of Europe eventually. Uh, China and Taiwan are keeping an eye on this. This is going mm-hmm. to cause problems for the United States down the road if we don't help Ukraine. What are we expecting tonight from Zelensky, and what do you expect from the atmospherics inside the hall? It's probably going to be very similar to his remarks uh, when he spoke to a virtual joint meeting of Congress uh, over the winter. He did this in mid-March. He obviously could not travel. Uh, He has not traveled until today outside of Ukraine since the war started. He was in Munich for a couple of days before the war started. Uh, It's probably going to be very similar. I'm also told, though, and this is something to really watch, is that you have... Uh, you know, Congress has kind of been half in session, half, half out here because they're trying to, to pass this omnibus spending bill. And so Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, encouraged members yesterday before it was formally announced that they were doing this meeting, that there was going to be a very special uh, celebration of democracy is kind of how she put it. So I want you in Washington, D.C. for this. Keep in mind, the House has remote voting. So when you have some of these joint meetings, if this was happening with a lot of notice and it was, say, happening not around the holidays, uh, this place would be packed to the brim with members of Congress probably from both sides. They're probably going to have to fill in some seats with interns and aides and so on. And they're not allowing regular guests to come. uh, And that's a a security concern here at the Capitol. Mm. Uh, I could imagine you're probably going to see uh, some very emotional responses, multiple rounds of applause. But what I'm looking for is, is there any reaction from those members Republicans, conservatives, maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene, some others uh, who have been, uh, you know, very forthright in their comments saying we should not be assisting Ukraine. You mentioned the omnibus spending bill. I talked about it a bit at the top of the show. Where do things stand right now? I mean, I, I hate the way this process is playing out. It's become now kind of a new normal, which I think is awful. Uh, how does this play out? What's the math? You always like talking about the math in terms of the vote <laughs> counts and that sort of thing. What is the math looking like these days? Uh, this is almost a fait accompli. And in, in the past couple of days, I have not talked about the math as much because at some point, uh, you know, they will have, uh, you know, uh, probably all 50 Democrats and 10 Republican senators, several of them who are exiting senators, uh, Roy Blunt, Republican from Missouri, Rob Portman from Ohio, probably a few others uh, who will vote for this bill. And we're told they're going to try to get this done tonight, uh, sometime after the speech. The idea that you get everybody here, everybody can talk, work out what the universe of amendment votes are going to be, and then pass this in the Senate probably overnight, kick it to the House of Representatives uh, tomorrow. And it will pass can the I House. Can I just ask, would, be would, there be, of, yeah. would this be one of these situations where there's a giant voterama that lasts all night with just you know, hundreds of amendments, or is that not ap- applicable here? It's not going to be hundreds of amendments, but it's going to be a few. And uh, it might be a little bit of a stretch to characterize it as a voterama uh, in this sense, but it will be a series of votes probably because everybody wants to have have their say on, on certain issues. So they'll pass that. You know, probably overnight tonight, and this is where people who are opposed to the process, opposed to the bill, will say, ah, you see, they snuck it through in the middle of the night, $1.7 trillion, nobody's read it, nobody's had time. Uh, You Mm -hmm. know, Mike Lee, the Republican senator from Utah, said a few days ago, he said, some of my colleagues must have, as he termed it, magical powers, because they announced they were for the bill before we had the text of the bill. Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, said, even though we didn't have it all collated together, all 4,100 pages, uh, almost all of these topics and all of these issues and the language had been addressed for weeks and months before. Uh, it is not a pretty way to run a railroad, I will say that. No, it is certainly not. Uh, meanwhile, Chad, 
what is it, January the 3rd, I believe, is the big date yes. in terms of leadership in the House. We had Kevin McCarthy here last week. Speaking of math, has that budged at all in recent days? Uh, it seems like, at least for now, the House Republicans, their very first official action could be a pretty messy one, trying to get their own speaker elected. Well, you talk about the math there. That is not going to be about the math. That is going to be about the algebra, because you don't know the actual number of votes necessary to elect the speaker until you take the vote and see how many people are absent, how many people have voted present, and uh, how many people, you know, what is the size of the actual House? The winning candidate, uh, you know, gets there because you ha- they had the most votes of the House of Representatives based on voting for someone by name based on voting for someone by name. And Kevin McCarthy has not moved the needle at all in weeks. We could be here for a long day on January 3rd, if not several days, Guy. The House cannot do anything, and I mean even swear in the other members, until it elects a speaker. It could take days to elect a speaker? It took three days in 1923, the last time it went to a second ballot. Frederick Gillette, Republican speaker, from Massachusetts uh, was being reelected. It took three days, nine ballots. It went for two months and 163 ballots in 1856. Oh, my word. Let's, let's hope Banks. that doesn't happen. <laughs> my gosh. Well, this, well, we'll have to we'll circle back on that chat as we get closer to that date, January the 3rd. A lot happening just tonight as well up on Capitol Hill. Chad Pergam, our correspondent there at Fox. Chad, great to talk to you. We'll take a break. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome back. I want to say a few things here quickly about this Zelensky address to Congress this evening. 7.30 p.m., a joint session. It will be, of course, aired live. I have a commitment, so I won't be able to watch it live, but I will watch it and review it with great interest. I think that this man deserves our attention and has earned it. He's also earned our respect. I'll just speak for myself. He's earned my respect. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that he is perfect, that Ukraine is an ideal democracy in every way. There is no criticism ever to be levied at the leadership of Ukraine or the political culture there or anything like that. That is not my point. My point is this man was elected in an actual democracy, unlike Russia, He had a background of a comedian and an actor, maybe not considered the most serious person. And then he was confronted in his leadership with a deadly serious situation. The great bear across the border, Russia, much bigger, much stronger, invaded with the goal of crushing his government and taking over his country. Like this isn't small stuff. This is big. The New York Times recently reported that some of these Russian officers were instructed to bring and pack their formal uniforms because there were going to be ceremonies and medals given out in Kiev after the city was toppled, and they expected that to happen very quickly. Of course, that's not what happened. And we've been watching history play itself out for almost a year at this point. I have noticed that in some quarters on the right and certain elements of the left as well, still fringes, 
Zelensky and Ukraine have almost become something of, I don't know, like a uh, punchline. Where it's like, oh, look at all this virtue signaling, people putting Ukrainian flags out in their yards or in their social media bios or what have you. And look, I get it. Some of it probably is virtue signaling. I also understand that this whole parade of celebrities going to Ukraine and meeting with Zelensky and Ukrainian officials, some of that does get a little bit cringy. But put yourself in his shoes. Right? He's the leader of a country that has been besieged and invaded. And they are doing everything that they can as like this little engine that could to repel the invasion and maintain their country. And they are fighting and dying in large numbers to do that. And he understands, as someone who's worked in entertainment, that the public's attention span is very short. I would say sometimes it's a problem how short it is. So he has been trying to maintain some top-of-mind awareness any way he can. And if that means having a cavalcade of international stars coming through to get a headline here or there, just to remind the rest of the world this is still happening... We still need your help and support. I can't blame him for that. As far as I'm concerned, when it comes to this war, a completely unjustified war of aggression by Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin and Russia, which has suffered massive casualties, by the way, so many losses of young people who will never come home for no reason whatsoever. In this context, there is a good side and a bad side. The good side is the Ukrainians defending their homeland with great valor. And the bad side is the Russians who tried to topple another government and completely take over a country for absolutely no reason whatsoever. No good reason. You can talk about nuance, and there are some nuances here or there. I think that it's fair to say that to the extent that the U.S. taxpayer continues to help the Ukrainians to the tune of tens of billions of dollars, we should be keeping a close eye on how that money is being spent. Right? There are ancillary and real concerns related to that. We can also ask questions about Europe doing its part right in that backyard. I know the Brits have been good. Other parts of Europe, less good. I think it's a credit to the United States that we have been so helpful to the Ukrainians, but Europe needs to do more. This is their sphere, their realm I think that's a fair point to make. It's not like the checks that we're writing should be blank and open-ended forever. But in terms of an investment of helping the Ukrainians defend themselves and deliver one humiliating blow after another to the Russians and perhaps giving other outlaw and authoritarian regimes pause about other military adventurism elsewhere in the world, I think that is absolutely worthwhile. And I think when we consider American military involvement, and we have a lot of people tired of what they call the forever wars, of course, the Biden administration ended one of those so-called forever wars in the worst way imaginable in Afghanistan, which was a huge embarrassment and a stain on our national reputation and conscience, that is something that we're still dealing with and will be, I think, dealing with for quite some time. There is not a forever war component to this one. This is not American forces, boots on the ground, dying for another country. This is the United States helping an imperfect democracy that is a clear victim defend itself. The Ukrainians have suffered a lot. 
They are willing to fight. They need the tools to do it, and I'm proud that we've given them a lot of those tools. So my hat is off to Zelensky. I think he will get a broad bipartisan standing ovation multiple times tonight, and he deserves it. He's been an extraordinary leader. I'm not saying he's like the greatest human being of all time, but given what he's up against and what his country's up against in the face of what's happened in Moscow and what they have done, like Putin versus Zelensky, not even close for me. And as an American, I want to be associated with the effort of the Ukrainians against the Russians. It's not a close call at all. I just want to say that. That's how I'm looking at this, and I know that we haven't focused on the issue quite as often as we did, especially in the early days of the war. And I think part of the reason that Zelensky's over here is to remind us yet again of what's happening. For us, it's a debate about spending and resources. For them, it's an existential life and death threat. With, I think, knock-on effects, with a lot of people watching, good and bad around the world, how is this going to turn out? Russian success would be a disaster. Russian failure would be a very good thing. So if I were in the chamber tonight, I would join the standing ovation for Zelensky. And we will have some of the coverage of it here tomorrow on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Just past the midway mark this broadcast week and on today's program as well, it's The Guy Benson Show, GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. And it's time once again for Woke Tales. Woke Tales. Woo! It's as if some folks at Stanford University all got together and said, let's figure out a way to create Woke Tales content for The Guy Benson Show. And so they set about creating the Harmful Language Initiative at that university. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board opined against it earlier in the week. Just listen to this. Parodists have it rough these days, since so much of modern life and culture resembles the Babylon Bee. The latest evidence is that Stanford University administrators in May pushed an index of forbidden words to be eliminated from the school's websites and computer code and provided inclusive replacements to help re-educate the benighted. Call yourself an American? Please don't. Better to say U.S. citizen, per the bias hunters, lest you slight the rest of the Americas. Immigrant is also out, with person who has immigrated as the approved alternative. It's the iron law of academic writing. Why use one word when four will do? You can't master your subject at Stanford any longer. In case you hadn't heard, the school instructs that historically masters enslaved people. And don't dare design a blind study, which unintentionally perpetuates that disability is somehow abnormal or negative, furthering an ableist culture. Blind studies are good and useful, but never mind. Quote, masked study is to be preferred. Follow the science, the editors quip. Then they go on and list some more of these forbidden words at Stanford that they're trying to basically eliminate from official materials and otherwise encourage students to follow suit. Gangbusters is a term that's now banned. I saw that trigger warning is also now a problem because it could be triggering unto itself. This is one of my favorite things about woke culture, where 
the lexicon has to change so rapidly all the time because the new terms invented by the wokesters quickly become problematic unto themselves. So if you're just getting caught up with what trigger warnings are, which has now been part of the woke silencing dialogue for years, trigger warnings because of the connotations connected to guns, that's now an issue. So you can't say that anymore. Trigger warnings, in fact, are triggering, (laughs) at least using the word. I also think I saw that preferred pronouns is out. We had this whole big push to address people by their preferred pronouns and telling people to, in fact, announce and advertise their preferred pronouns. But because the word prefer suggests that it might be a choice rather than someone's immutable identity, even though these pronouns sometimes change based on the person's mood or self-conception or what have you, to have that word preferred, that's offensive. So we're no longer supposed to talk about preferred pronouns. It's just your pronouns. It's not a preference. It's just a fact or whatever. So that's where we have a few updates to the permissible list of words that can be used at a place like Stanford, some of which were brand new additions at the behest of the woke people, and it's already out, already unacceptable, already problematic. What a waste of time. What an embarrassment, honestly. Stanford has a lot going for it. We love going out there to the Hoover Institution. But determining that the word immigrant is a problem, saying that you're an American is a problem, only extremely smart academics can be this stupid. Meanwhile, here's another story that falls into the woke tales category. Long New York Times piece headlined, How Naming the James Webb Telescope Turned Into a Fight Over Homophobia. This story in the Times begins this way. For half a decade now, influential young scientists have denounced NASA's decision to name its deep space telescope after James E. Webb, who led the space agency to the cusp of the 1969 moon landing. This man, they insisted, was a homophobe who oversaw a purge of gay employees. So I guess some of these hyper-political left-wing scientists pass their days freaking out about whether or not someone who was alive decades ago in a very different time with very different social mores, whether we can name telescopes after them because they might have believed things that are bad and things that do not comport with the current understanding of what is good and righteous. Now, I would say purging gays and discriminating against gays was always wrong. But you have to understand, people live in their times. There are different eras to hold historical figures to modern standards on a lot of this stuff is just ridiculous. If we're not going to name things after people who might have objected to gay marriage, basically every historical figure is out. All of the founders, I mean, it goes well beyond that. You'd have to name everything after current Democratic politicians, many of them ignoring their previous positions, and maybe like members of the drag queen community in Northern California, like in the Bay Area. That's it. Those are your choices if this is the standard. So if James Webb was homophobic or enforced homophobic policies decades ago, I hate to tell these people, but he absolutely wasn't alone. That was just how society was. For better and worse, I would say for worse, but it wasn't unique to him. However, 
a guy named Hakeem Olusei, now the president of the National Society of Black Physicists, was initially sympathetic to these critics. He then delved into the archives and talked to historians. He then wrote a carefully sourced essay in Medium last year laying out his surprising findings. Quote, I can say conclusively, he wrote, that there is zero evidence that Webb is guilty of the allegations against him. NASA then commissioned an 89-page report that echoed these findings. Based on research, they concluded the accusations against Mr. Webb were misplaced. So the big homophobe wasn't even a big homophobe, based on the actual record, but that, of course, wasn't good enough. Some of these woke scientists said, no, you still have to punish him and hold him responsible for the culture of homophobia. There was an open letter where they wrote, we are deeply concerned by the implication that managers are not responsible for homophobia. So even though this man wasn't guilty of the alleged sins that he was said to have committed, because he was a manager in that era, that's still good reason in some people's minds to take his name off the telescope. Based on, I don't know, just shrug. Because we want to get a scalp, we want to feel like we're doing something with our lives, we want to be angry about something, so James Webb is the guy. In October, the Royal Astronomical Society in Britain... They declared that Mr. Webb was engaged in, quote, entirely unacceptable behavior. They instructed their members, if they were going to submit a paper to one of its journals, they should not use the words James Webb. They must use an abbreviation, J-W-S-T. That, I guess, is good enough. And so this whole round of self-flagellation and outrage is consuming parts of the scientific community. I guess this is what they want to spend their time on. Some historical grievance settling against someone who isn't even responsible and guilty of the things that they said he was. And when it was proven that that was the case, they didn't care, as the mob so rarely does, which is why they should be resisted and fought at every turn, but a lot of people just give in. They just surrender, and it encourages more of this madness, which we cover as often as we can in Woke Tales. Woke Tales. The Guy Benson Show continues next. Guy Benson will be right back. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert. President Joe Biden in the East Room of the White House, standing right next to President Zelensky of Ukraine. They have just kicked off moments ago a joint press conference in advance of Zelensky's speech to Congress tonight. Let's dip in live to the White House with these two men standing next to each other and addressing the crisis in the latter leader's country, the President of the United States. Unprecedented sanctions and export controls on Russia making it harder for the Kremlin to wage this brutal war. More than 50 nations have committed nearly 2,000 tanks and other armored vehicles, more than 800 artillery systems, more than 2 million rounds of artillery ammunition, and more than 50 advanced multiple rocket launching systems, anti-ship and anti-air defense systems, all to strengthen Ukraine. Together, we provided billions of dollars in direct budgetary support to make sure the Ukrainian government can keep providing basic fundamental services to the Iranian people, like health care, education, and emergency personnel. This includes another $2 billion that in direct budget support from the American people that the World Bank distributed earlier this week. We provided humanitarian assistance to help 
the millions of Ukrainians who have been forced to flee their homes because of Putin's inhumane, brutal war. Communities across Europe have opened their hearts and their homes to help Ukrainians in need. The United States has been proud to welcome more than 221,000 Ukrainians seeking refuge since March of 2022, including as part of Uniting for Ukraine, as, as part of our Uniting for Ukraine program. And today, USAID is committing more than $374 million in urgently needed humanitarian assistance for Ukraine. This will help provide food and cash assistance for more than 1.5 million Ukrainian people, as well as access to health care, safe drinking water, and help stay warm in the winter to more than — for more than 2.5 million Ukrainians. The United States and our allies and partners around the world have delivered a broad range of assistance at historic speed and has been critical to bolstering Ukraine's success thus far. Ukraine has won the Battle of Kyiv, has won the Battle of Kherson, has won the Battle of Kharkiv. Ukraine has defied Russia's expectations at every single turn. <clears throat> and President Zelensky, Zelensky, you have made it clear that he is uh, open to pursuing uh, — um, well, let me put it this way. He's not open, but you're open to pursuing peace. You're open to pursuing a just peace. We also know that Putin has no intention, no intention of stopping this cruel war. And the United States is committed to ensuring that the brave Ukrainian people can continue, continue to defend their country against Russian aggressions as long as it takes. And I want to thank the members of Congress and their, for their broad bipartisan support to Ukraine. And I look forward to signing the omnibus, omnibus bill soon, which includes $45 billion. $45 billion in additional funding for Ukraine. I'll also sign into law the National Defense Authorization Act, which includes author authorities for — to make it easier for the Department of Defense to procure critical munitions and defense materials for Ukraine and other key materials to strengthen our national security. Today, I'm announcing the next tranche of our security assistance to Ukraine, $1.85 billion package of security assistance and includes both direct transfers of equipment to you that Ukraine needs, as well as contracts to supply ammunition Ukraine will need in the months ahead for its artillery, its tanks, and its rocket launchers. Critically, in addition to these new capabilities, like precision aerial munitions, the package will include a Patriot missile battery, which will — and one which will train Ukrainian forces to operate as part of the ongoing effort to help bolster Ukraine's air defense. It's going to take some time to complete the necessary training, but the Patriot battery will be another critical asset for Ukraine as it defends itself against Russian aggression. Altogether, today's new security assistance with humanitarian funding amounts to $2.2 billion in additional support for the Ukrainian people. We should be clear about what Russia is doing. It is purposefully attacking Ukraine's critical infrastructure, destroying the systems to provide heat and light to the Ukrainian people during the coldest, darkest part of the year. Russia is using winter as a weapon, freezing people, starving people, cutting them off from one another. 
It's the latest example of the outrageous atrocities the Russian forces are committing against innocent Ukrainian civilians, children, and their families. And the United States is working together with our allies and partners to provide critical equipment to help Ukraine make emergency repairs to their power transmission systems and strengthen the stability of Ukraine's grid in the face of Russia's targeted attacks. We're also working to hold Russia accountable, including efforts in Congress that will make it easier to seek justice for Russia's war crimes in Ukraine. Let me close with this. Tonight is the fourth night of, night of Hanukkah, a time when Jewish people around the world, President Zelensky and many of the families among them, honor the timeless miracle of a small band of warriors fighting for their values and their freedom against a much larger foe and how they endured and how they overcame. How the flame of faith, with only enough oil for one day, burned brightly for eight days. A story of survival and resilience that reminds us that the coldest days of the year, that light will always prevail over darkness, and hope drives away despair. And that the human spirit is unconquerable as long as there are good people willing to do what is right. This year has brought so much needless suffering and loss to the Ukrainian people. But I want you to know, President Zelensky, I want you to know that all the people of Ukraine to know as well. The American people have been with you every step of the way, and we will stay with you. We will stay with you for as long as it takes. What you're doing, what you've achieved, it matters not just to Ukraine, but to the entire world. And together, I have no doubt we'll keep the flame of liberty burning bright, and the light will remain and prevail over the darkness. Thank you for being here, Mr. President. We're going to stand with you. Thank you. Dear Mr. President, please put on the equipment. Once again, Mr. President, President Biden, audience, journalists, ladies and gentlemen, I came here to the United States to uh, forward the thank the word of thanks to the people of America, people who do so much for Ukraine. I am thankful for all of this. This visit to the United States became a really a historic one for our relations with the United States and the American leadership. In the last 30 days of this war, we have started a new phase of our interrelations with the United States. We became a real uh, uh, partners and allies with the content. And I felt right, you've been listening live to the president of the United States and the president of Ukraine at the White House. As this joint press conference continues, we will monitor it. President Biden wearing, I would think, symbolically a blue and yellow tie as he gave his remarks. And now you, through a translator, you're listening to Zelensky. And he will continue his prepared remarks here, and I think they might take some questions. We'll just keep an eye on it. Later tonight, President Zelensky will speak in English when he addresses a joint meeting of Congress where my guess is he will receive a broad, bipartisan, warm reception, his first trip out of that country since the Russians invaded earlier this year. I don't often agree with President Biden, but I agree with almost everything that he said, what we just heard. 
We'll keep watching this on The Guy Benson Show with another hour coming up straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's our final hour on this Wednesday here on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks so much for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day on demand after the show is over. That's GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, both the same handle, at GuyBensonShow. You can follow me personally at Guy P. Benson. This hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Terrific. Fantastic. We're getting some more ahead of Christmas here at the house. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you as they expand. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and always drink responsibly. With us now from the southern border is Bill Malugin, Fox national correspondent who has been faithfully covering the border crisis now for many months on end. And, Bill, we know that this was all supposed to come to a head this week, even more than it already has with the expiration of Title 42. Now there's been at least something of a temporary reprieve somewhat from the U.S. Supreme Court. What actually is happening down there? What's the reaction to this sort of confusing judicial development? It's business as usual down here. We just had a morning of massive illegal crossings here in the Eagle Pass, which is what we have every day. And that's because most of the people crossing here aren't subject to Title 42 in the first place. They're from countries that it's not enforced on, like Cuba, Colombia, and Nicaragua. So for them, it really doesn't matter what happens with Title 42 because they weren't being expelled in the first place. In other parts of the border, you now have long lines of migrants who are waiting behind razor wire at the river's edge in El Paso, where the Texas National Guard is basically set up a blockade and they're not letting anybody in. You've got more than 10,000 migrants waiting in Mexican border cities down in the Rio Grande Valley uh, saying that they're going to cross as soon as Title 42 does drop. So it's just a holding pattern right now. And this has happened multiple times. First, Title 42 was supposed to drop in May. Everybody was planning for it. And then the courts halted it. Then it was supposed to drop last night at midnight and the Supreme Court gets involved. And now we're in a temporary stay. So nobody really knows when it's going to drop or if it's going to drop. But it's basically business as usual here at the border, mass illegal crossings in multiple sectors all over the border in El Paso, hundreds. we got a live camera up in Yuma, Arizona right now, 300 just crossed. And we've seen well over 500 out here in Eagle Pass just, just with our cameras this morning. We had heard a number that maybe 50,000 illegal immigrants were just massing south of the border, waiting for Title 42 to end, and then the plan would be for basically all of them to just cross at that point. Is that an estimate that you have seen confirmed anywhere? Where is that number coming from? I believe that was a DHS projection, and that's what we're hearing from Border Patrol sources as well. In my opinion, that's probably an undercount. Because keep in mind, you've had people in Mexico since May 
who thought Title 42 was going to drop. And over the last six, seven months, you've had more and more people coming. We know for a fact there are tens of thousands of Venezuelans in particular in Mexico waiting. Because remember, uh, up until October, all Venezuelans were showing up. They were not subject to Title 42, and they were all just getting mass released. Then in October, it became a political problem for the Biden administration, so they did something about it. They started, they cut a deal with Mexico, and they started expelling Venezuelans under Title 42. And the numbers of Venezuelans crossing the border now have suddenly dropped 90%. Well, one of, that means one of two things, because they didn't go back to Venezuela. They're either waiting in Mexico for Title 42 to drop, or they've crossed the border as gotaways and are not turning themselves in. And we know for a fact there are a lot of Venezuelans waiting in Mexico because we have gone over into these Mexican border cities, and we've talked to them, and they have specifically told us they are waiting for Title 42 to end because they feel that will be their opportunity. So, yes, I believe it is absolutely feasible that there are 50,000-plus migrants all over the southern border waiting to cross. And DHS does as well because that's where they're getting some of their math with their projections that we could see upwards of 14,000 crossings per day. I want to come back to something that you and I discussed last week when we were getting an update on the situation down there. You had said that there were reports, or at least you were aware of, the Mexican authorities escorting busloads of illegal immigrants right up to the border, just waiting to basically offload this problem into the U.S. It wasn't that long ago, under the previous administration, that there was a Remain in Mexico policy that was hammered out with the Mexican government. And now it seems like, at least in some cases, because that is long gone and the U.S. government has taken a very different policy posture, now Mexican officials are basically aiding and abetting some of this human trafficking to get these folks, dozens if not hundreds of them, right up to the border as easily as possible and become someone else's problem, namely ours. Is that accurate? Yeah, the the Mexican authorities, if they're not aiding it, they're at least turning a blind eye to it. And we see that every day out here, especially in Eagle Pass. I mean, when we have seven to ten days in a row of five o'clock in the morning, same spot every morning, a group of 500 crossing in the same spot, and the Mexicans don't do anything about it on the other side, I mean, that tells you something in itself. Then last Sunday, when that caravan of up to 2,000 crossed illegally into El Paso, we had video of the buses the migrant buses being escorted into Juarez by Mexican National Guard and the Mexican State Police, the Chihuahua State Police. And then they dropped them off at NGOs, and then they all just walked to the river and crossed. They were escorted in by Mexican authorities. And there were some reports, the AP reported, that people saw the Mexican police saying, there's the U.S., just go cross and claim asylum. We did not see that. All we saw was the police escort. Um, but, I mean, people can see for themselves. They brought them in, they dropped them off right at the border, and then we've seen what's, what's been happening in El Paso this last week. In El Paso, I saw some images that you had posted of what the Texas authorities are trying to do with some of these shipping crates, some barbed wire, floodlights. I mean, it's very clear that the federal government really has very little interest whatsoever in addressing this issue in a serious way. The Texas state government has been much more proactive about it for quite a long time. I went down to the border as a guest of the state of Texas months ago and saw what their Department of Public Safety was up to in their big operation. What's this new component that they're trying to add to make it harder for people to cross, at least in some areas? 
So the state of Texas and Governor Abbott are really trying to send a, a message to the migrants. They're trying to take the posture that you are not welcome and we are not going to roll out the red carpet for you like the federal government. So they're used to being able to just cross anywhere, any place without any resistance. So what Governor Abbott is doing is in some of the biggest hotspots, Eagle Pass and El Paso, he's brought in the National Guard and he's put up concertina wire, which is essentially razor wire, shipping containers, um, floodlights, and army Humvees. Uh, he's basically trying to it's, it's almost like a militarized look to give a look to the migrants of strong deterrence, like don't even try crossing. Now, the problem is. All the migrants do is they just go around to another area where all that stuff isn't in place because uh, there's some areas where it's federal land and the state of Texas can't put what it wants on that land. And the, the migrants will just go to a different part of the land and, and cross there where the feds aren't trying to stop them. Uh, we've seen that happen here in Eagle Pass. And now what they're doing in El Paso is because they have all the wire and all the soldiers down there, uh, they're crossing on the outskirts of town, just away from it. So, the, look, the migrants typically always find a way around these barricades and obstacles. The underlying issue is, is policy, right? No matter how many physical barriers you you try putting up. I want to ask you about a talking point that has emerged. It's not all that new. Some people have attempted it in recent months, but it never really gained traction. Now that the Title 42 crisis is upon us or almost upon us and the results are just so catastrophic that no one can really deny them we've seen a real effort to lean into the talking point from the white house from some congressional democrats and even some in the media who are giving hostile questions to republicans based on this claim that was repeated earlier this week from the white house podium that republican politicians denouncing open borders and the open borders policies, those words are what is driving the crisis. For example, Martha Raddatz, we played the clip of her, ABC News, interviewing the Texas governor a few days ago. She said she's never heard President Biden say the border's open, but she has heard Republicans saying that. Isn't that playing directly into the cartel's hands? And that is what Corinne Jean-Pierre has been saying as well, this is now like the official talking point. If you say open borders, even in the context of trying to reject the policies and get better policies put in place, you're actually the ones fueling the crisis as opposed to the policies that are in place. Having been down there covering this now for the better part of two years, Bill, when you hear that, what's your reaction? It's absolutely ridiculous. The migrants, when they come in, they're not wearing thank you, Governor Abbott T-shirts. They're not saying thank you, Governor DeSantis. They're saying thank you, Joe Biden. Thank you for letting us in. The border is open. The border is abierta. And all you have to do is rewind the clock to the debates in 2019 when Biden was on the campaign trail. What did he say during the debate? If I'm president, we're going to search the border with asylum seekers. We're the type of country where if you want to come, you should come. We should search the border. That's exactly what happened when he took office. He reversed every border security measure that the Trump administration put in place, and all of a sudden, everybody started coming. And look, the numbers speak for themselves. Um, the, the administration can continue to claim that the border is closed. It's just not reality. And you, you can ask that whether it's the migrants or Border Patrol or even fellow Democrats. You know, Joe Manchin has said it's not closed. You've got Henry Cuellar saying it's not closed. It is not a realistic statement to say that the border is closed, not when you've got over a million gotaways, not when you have the highest illegal crossings ever, not when you have the migrants themselves 
telling you that the border is open as they wave to our cameras and flash a thumbs up and tell us where they're planning to travel to the U.S. once they're released. It, it, it's just not uh, it's not a realistic statement. We'd like to also, when we check in with you, Bill, just learn about any recent vignettes or developments that you've witnessed or you've heard from officials down there in law enforcement about the types of people that are being interdicted, most of whom just want to have a better life here, and you can't blame them for that. You can blame them for breaking our laws, but we're making it a lot easier for them to do so. The federal government is. The Biden administration is. There are, however, a fraction, there's some subsection of the illegal crossers who are bad people with malicious intentions. And some of them get caught. Many of them do not. They're part of that gotaway category that you mentioned, both known and unknown. But are there any new developments on folks getting apprehended who should perhaps give American citizens pause about the types of people who are trying to enter this country in violation of our laws? Absolutely. Last week, uh, Border Patrol in the Rio Grande Valley announced that their agents arrested two illegal immigrants um, who crossed kind of near the Brownsville area, uh, both of whom had homicide convictions, one of whom was previously convicted of murdering a peace officer in Los Angeles, the other who had a conviction for murder in the state of Virginia. And those were two separate incidents, two separate people arrested with with murder convictions. And when you've got over one million gotaways and you've got more than 70,000 in a month last month, that is obviously highly, highly concerning. Lastly, back in El Paso, which has become one of the epicenters, especially of late, the Democratic mayor of that city had really been avoiding declaring a state of emergency, reportedly at the behest of the White House and the Biden administration for political reasons. That's what he had told colleagues. Then that was reported publicly and he denied it. But the colleagues said, no, that's exactly what he told us. Well, then the declaration was made anyway a few days ago because I guess they just couldn't go on any further. It was clearly an emergency. What precipitated the change? Was it just like at some point it got so bad that even a Democrat who wants to play ball with the sort of political games at the White House just couldn't keep up with it anymore and and had to do it because of the situation on the ground? Yeah, so Mayor Oscar Leeser actually explained why he made the sudden change. What he said was he felt if he ever got to a point where he felt the community wasn't safe or the migrants weren't safe, then he would declare the emergency. And he said he got to that point last week that he felt people weren't safe because they had hundreds of people sleeping out on the streets in the bitter cold temperatures. They were getting so overrun. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you've seen the images from El Paso Airport and all the hundreds of people just camped out homeless on El Paso streets. And now you've got this, you know, polar vortex coming in. The temperatures are dropping. He said it eventually reached a point where he felt people could die. And this isn't the way people should be treated either in the community of El Paso or the migrants who are essentially homeless in that community. So he decided total disgrace. I mean, humanitarian debacle people's lives in danger and of course hundreds of migrants have died u.s officials have died some by suicide it's gotten so bad down there public safety concerns national security concerns and just the overall farce when it comes to law and order and respect for our laws the whole thing it just keeps going and it keeps getting worse somehow and it might get even worse depending on what happens at the supreme court kind of like a little potential blip at the Supreme Court this week, delaying something further. But as Bill Malugin has told us right at the very top of this interview, for the most part, it's just more of the same. On and on it goes down there at the border, and we're going to stay on it here. Bill, Christmas coming up. 
I think our audience would agree that you have earned some time off. I hope you're going to get some time with family to relax and recharge before you get back down there to keep your reporting going. Merry Christmas to you. We always appreciate your time here. Thanks, Guy. Really appreciate it. Merry Christmas to you and your entire team, and uh, look forward to talking to you next. We will step aside and come right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It is my great pleasure, thankfully, uh, despite a brief absence, technically speaking, to welcome Aaron not only back to the Bronx, but to welcome Aaron back to the Bronx as he's 16th captain of this great organization, the New York Yankees. An honor and a position which he greatly deserves. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Al Steinbrenner announcing that Aaron Judge is not only back, having inked officially a nine-year deal with the Yankees, $360 million. Boy, he had a good walk year as AL MVP, setting those records, and he got paid. Yankee fans would have rioted if they didn't sign him. And now he's back as the captain, the 16th captain of the Yankees. I am a Yankees fan. I'm pretty sure he's the first captain since Derek Jeter, who, of course, deserved that honor in every way. And so we'll see a couple other big moves by the Yankees in the offseason, other teams making moves as well, including across the city. The Mets are on a crazy spending spree. Carlos Correa, Justin Verlander, and the list goes on. They are approaching half a billion dollars on that payroll, which is just eye-opening, bringing in some big contributors to the Houston Astros and their recent success. I mean, the Mets' ownership and management really want to win. And they are spending accordingly. And, Dan, I know you're a Yankee fan as well. Do you think we will hear maybe Met fans change their tune on big spending and quote-unquote buying championships? That was their argument for years against the Yankees. I feel like generally it's just sour grapes. If you can spend and spend your way to really good players, that's what fan bases want. They just get annoyed when it's other teams doing it. I cannot wait to throw it back in their face because, as you did for years, all we heard was, you're buying championships. You're buying championships. It's like, yeah, that's what baseball is. You get the best players. If you have the money, you're spending it. And that's exactly what Steve Cohen and the Mets are doing. And it's smart. And they're probably going to be pretty good. Yeah, I think they'll be a contender for sure. And the thing is, though, even from the Yankees' perspective, you can spend all this money. It's actually not that easy to just buy a championship. You can get all these players with all these accolades You've got to put it together and actually win in the postseason. That has eluded the Yankees now here for a while. Should be another interesting season coming up. Just some hot stove stuff happening in baseball. Wanted to mention it. Flag it here. We occasionally do on the Guy Benson Show. Back to politics next. Stay with us. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Earlier on today's Guy Benson Show, Josh Krasauer was here talking politics. A lot of really interesting things on the docket today with Josh. He, of course, is senior politics reporter at Axios and a Fox News contributor. Here's part of that politics-heavy discussion with Josh Kay. Talk about just some of the hubris of that campaign, some of the odd choices that they made. And it's just sort of astounding that after all of that, plus an eight-point loss, they're in the hole by seven figures. Yeah, the problem for Stacey Abrams is that she treated her campaign more like a cause than a campaign. And, you know, by by appealing to every progressive priority instead of focusing on the moderate voters, 
that win elections in Georgia. Not only did she lose by eight points, but they wasted money on uh, – I mean, <laughs> it was pretty funny reading the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh, story. Uh, you know, there was a swag truck that cost thousands and thousands of dollars. They rented a house in an expensive Atlanta neighborhood for TikTok creators. None of this stuff was, was going to be helpful in her getting the votes she needed to win an election. But they, they were bringing in money from national donors, not in Georgia, but in Los Angeles, New York, and Washington, D.C. And, and, and her, her campaign totally lost a track of what it takes to win, and, and it became a cult of personality campaign instead of a, a campaign that, that is, is effective. Uh, so, I mean, look, I, I think this is the last full book. I, I don't think a lot of Democrats are going to be pining for Stacey Abrams to, to run for office, whether it's president or governor of Georgia or even dog catcher in, in Georgia anymore, because she underperformed almost every Democrat on, on a ballot uh, in, in her own election. And, and look, even going back to 2018, I always thought that her campaign was massively overhyped, just like Beto O'Rourke's campaign that year was overhyped and over over uh, learned. And uh, look, she she was in a Democratic wave election, and she couldn't win in Georgia. And, and obviously, she lost by a much bigger mar- margin in 2022. Uh, this should be the end of Stacey, of the Stacey Abrams hype machine. And uh, good riddance, because she wasted a lot of her donors' money uh, apparently with the campaign. You have an analysis at Axios: the GOP's four must-win counties for 2024. I mean, how'd you narrow it down to four? I mean, there's there's probably you could point to two dozen crucial counties you've boiled it down to four uh, how did you make those choices what are the counties talk about the significance there i know it feels early but it it really isn't lessons need to be actively learned right now i think for the republicans ahead of the new cycle that's already really underway yeah it, it's not I mean, that you could name dozens of counties but what i focused on in the point of this, this story was to focused on the fact that Republicans underperformed in the in the suburbs where they used to do quite well not that long ago. And and these are areas of, of these battleground states in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and, and yes, Wisconsin, where uh, your Republican the, the, the opportunity for Republicans to do much better was missed in 2022, but could be realized in 2024. And, you know, number one on the list was Bucks County, uh, Pennsylvania, where you have a Republican congressman who's won election after election against all types of Democrats, but where at the national level and even the, the, the statewide level, folks like Trump and Mehmet Oz and, 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 and certainly Doug Mastriano got got trounced in, in, in an area that has always been pretty friendly to Republican candidates. Pat Toomey won there twice. Uh, but, you know, Cobb County, Georgia, that's not a county that I don't th- – I think it's tough for Republicans to win Cobb County outside of Atlanta, but they certainly can make it really close, as Governor Kent did in, in this recent election. And, and, you know, Herschel Walker got, got dominated uh, in, in, in that suburb that used to be, you know, Newt Gingrich's home base not that long ago. Uh, so the other, the other two, two big ones, uh, Brown County, Wisconsin, right around the Green Bay area, which is a, maybe a slightly more Republican suburb than the other three, and Maricopa County, Arizona, in the Phoenix and, and outline area of Phoenix, uh, which, as we know, has become sort of the epicenter of this election denialism movement in the state. That full conversation with Josh Krasauer of Axios and a Fox News contributor, available online, GuyBensonShow.com. It's part of our podcast. Free every day, start to finish the whole show, on demand, no charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
When we come back, the home stretch, I saw something interesting on Instagram earlier today. I now have questions based on what I saw in a story, an Instagram story from one of our team members. We will ask questions and get answers right after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch as we approach Christmas together on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. So we talk a lot about Twitter on the show just because it's part of what we do here. I follow a lot of stories there as part of my job. And then, of course, the whole controversy surrounding Twitter and Elon Musk and all of that. But another platform that I use in a much less political way is Instagram. And I did notice a new feature in recent days that has been annoying to me. I didn't bring it up. I didn't mention it at all. But Quiet Wyatt piped up. He was also annoyed by, I think, what they're calling Instagram notes. Wyatt, can you describe Instagram notes? I still don't quite understand the point. Yeah, guys. So it's just like a a new way, like another story type thing. You know, when you have Instagram story and it just you just type something and it's on the top of your profile or whatever and other people can see it and it's only like a few words you could put on it's almost like a i guess a tweet on on instagram but i just find it annoying because no one asked for this and you there's no way i don't think you can get rid of it so it's just another feature that no one really wants and it takes up screen space is the thing like not a lot of people are actually participating in it so far from what i can tell so you have a bunch of people basically boycotting it effectively. Other people are using it. In some cases, they're making notes about the notes feature to mock notes, saying, like, what's the point of this? But there's a whole sort of portion of the screen now dedicated to what kind of reminds me of away messages from AOL Instant Messenger, which is a big thing when I was in middle school and high school and maybe college. I actually almost never used it. I wasn't allowed to use it before I was in college. And I just saw how much time was wasted on AOL and the petty games that were played. I guess a lot of that just moved to social media, but it wasn't for me. But when you were gone, rather than looking like you were active, you would put up an away message to say, I'm off to do something BRB, like be right back. Or you would put up a quote, or you would put up something that you thought was funny, or you put up something petty that was really targeted at one person in a passive-aggressive way. These were the games that were played at the time, and I feel like there's maybe shades of that with Instagram notes, but my biggest objection, if people like the new feature and it's something that they find worthwhile, I mean, have at it, go for it. I just don't want to see it. There should be a way where you can just go and like click a little X and it vanishes. It's taking up precious screen space. I don't want to look at it, and there should at least be a way to opt out of seeing it. If you want to opt back in, or occasionally maybe they can remind you, hey, do you want to see Instagram notes? Fine. I just want to be able to get rid of it. But from what I can tell, you can't. So if there's anyone at Instagram, I think it's Meta, the Facebook parent company. If you're listening, we don't really want Instagram notes, or at least make it optional for folks where they can click away. That's all I'm saying. I will, however, 
especially when I'm killing some time, and because I'm not a TikTok user, I will scroll through Instagram stories, which are little, like, temporary photos or videos or images or messages that people can put up in a different area of Instagram, also separate from Reels, which is their more direct competition with TikTok. And I was scrolling earlier, just, I think, maybe having a little bit of lunch, seeing what people were up to, and I noticed an interesting Instagram story from one cookie, producer Christine, who appeared to be in the middle of a major construction project of some sort at her apartment, and it just didn't seem like a normal thing that Christine would be doing, building some giant thing. That just doesn't necessarily strike me as something that's in her wheelhouse. So I don't know what the answer to this question is, and I almost shudder to ask it, but Christine, you advertised on your social media that something was happening, and you were, I guess, or are building something today. I'm not sure how much time you spent doing that versus producing the show, but what is this project? Always have to get that little remark in, don't you, Guy? Um, that was actually not me building. That was my husband building, and I snapped a picture of it. Um, that is one of Santa's presents for Miss Megan. Uh, Christmas, uh, I'm sure many parents right now have entered the phase of Christmas where we are now building things. Because what we don't want to happen is come home Christmas Eve and start building late at night. So we're trying right, to overnight. do... Yeah, some of them we have to do, but we're trying to do the big what ones. What is this? This looks big. Whatever it is looks yeah. big. It's a vanity. It's like a huge vanity with like a, a mirror with like the huge light bulbs, like the old school ones. And so the whole thing has to be like put in a, together. Like a star's dressing room back in the day? Kind of. Yep. Yep. Exactly like that. I actually want it for myself. Um, so then I'm going <laughs> to... You're uh, jealous. You're going to steal it. Actually, probably... Megan, Santa made a mistake. This is for mommy. <laughs> I probably will use it um, <laughs> when I do makeup, but uh, that's one of her bigger ones. So Bobby had to put that together. He actually took off today to help me because Christine has decided – Cookie has decided to be a Christmas elf, not only for Megan, but for a few other kids in the area that need a Christmas more than ever. So I've stretched myself a little thin here, but that's okay. The show will continue. Don't you worry. I got everything mm. under control. So Bobby took a whole day off to construct this thing. How mm -hmm. long is it done? Like how long did it take? So it's done. I think it took him not too long, maybe an hour, hour and a half. But the problem is there's like electrical work that needs to be done. <laughs> so Oh, yeah. Um, this is complicated. Yeah, he'll be hiding in our bathroom tonight trying to fix that. Uh, I think he crossed some wires wrong. but And then he has a couple little things he needs to build. And then I need him to, ugh, I need him to build something else for another little kid. So, I've like I said, uh, a lot is happening. But it's a Christmas season. It's good. It's all fun, and I just can't wait to see the excitement and the joy on my daughter's face as well as other kids. This well, let's just make sure she's not listening to the home stretch, because that's a pretty big spoiler alert there on several different levels involving Santa, involving what the gift is. But I was going to say, Christine. I was prepared to be very impressed that you were doing this, mm, mm -mm. but now you've admitted that you weren't really part of the process. This is a Bobby thing, so hats off to him. The reason I was going to say it is I am, I would say, uniquely incompetent at this sort of thing. Like, if you want to ask me to write a 15-page essay about something, great. 
I'll knock that out. It'll be terrific. If you ask me to construct even the most basic piece of Ikea furniture, for example, I just, like, want to curl up in the fetal position and rock back and forth softly weeping. I just, I am so, so unhandy at things. Adam makes fun of me all the time for it, and I just take it, like, because I know that I don't really have a response. It's like the line from The Simpsons where the principal, I believe, tells a kid that the other children, quote, are right to laugh at you. Like, I deserve (laughs) mockery for how bad I am at this. And I thought maybe, hey, this is maybe an area where Christine is way better than I am. And I was going to give you props, but you have. See, you've done. I'm going to give you props a different way. You have done something that I have become very good at, which is to offload these types of projects onto a spouse who's much better at it. And I think actually derives some pleasure from getting something like this accomplished. I don't enjoy the ride at all. I just want it done. But other people are wired and built differently. And it sounds like maybe Adam and Bobby are those types of people. And we're the type of people who are good to supervise, let's say, and delegate. I am good at shopping. Let's put it out that way. I get everything that we need. And then I, like you said, I delegate, you know, Megan's wrapping gifts for for me right now. Bobby's building things for me right now. I even got Judgy Joyce doing some stuff. So it is, um, it's all being handled. And I'm, I'm, would you say I'm handling it pretty well? I'm close to losing it, but I'm doing well. Yeah, you had a few wobbly moments on the call earlier where you sounded like you might be kind of on the verge of a breakdown of some sort, but <laughs> you're powering through it. You yes. said that you're and very with- good at doing the shopping, right? So, like, you know, kudos to that, although I will point out that there was the whole mishap in California and the Target order, so you got that oh. straightened out. Like, did this was this vanity at any point in Los Angeles, or did this one no. get shipped to the right place on the first try? <laughs> no, no. And, oh, let me just say, because Wyatt just put on the group chat, this is all powered by Mama's Juice. But, no, not a glass of Mama's Juice has been had this week because Cookie needs to stay focused. Mm. Maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe I, you're having these is. emotional breakdowns because you're, like, in withdrawal. No, but remember when I got um, really sick when I decided to do Dry January? Stuff goes mm-hmm. bad when I give up the Mama's Juice. Yeah, it's the I'm opposite. Just saying. Yeah, see, I'm I'm just saying. I'm not <laughs> recommending anything, but I can sort of imagine you overseeing Bobby. So you've got like a phone in one hand, texting our guests to make sure that they're all confirmed and mm-hmm. making sure that we got the rundown. And in the other hand, you've got a big holiday pour of Mama's juice as you quote unquote help Bobby by questioning what he's doing while not actually really helping. This is the mental image that conjures up. Yes, and in the meantime, I have people coming to my apartment building because I am somebody that if someone says, like, say, in, like, a Facebook group, like, oh, my gosh, this child, the only thing they want for Christmas is this. They've had a really bad year. I cannot find it. Guess who's going to find it? Bobby says that I'm a dog with a bone. Mm -hmm. I hope that something that he better not just be calling me a dog but no, i will no. find it and i will make sure that child has the their their greatest gift so i've been running around trying to help like just kids in need that need stuff so i'm doing that i'm delegating bobby oh, you're um, like a you're like a gift sleuth you're like 
Sherlock Cookie Holmes over here. It's kind of like booking. Like you say, I need that person. I'm going to try everywhere I can. Like I will do it. So. Yep. Dog with a bone. That's actually a pretty good phrase from Bobby. It's not offensive. It does not have the connotation that you just suggested. I hope you have gotten a bone, by the way, for your dog, Rosie. I would love some proof of life of her. It's been a while here. I'm starting to get oh. concerned. But it seems like uh, it's kind of teetering a little bit here, but you still have a few more days. It's only Wednesday, and Christmas is not till Saturday. Or Sunday. You've got even more days. Christmas Eve is Saturday. Oh, you're good, Christine. You got this. And tonight, after the show, is Megan's Christmas play. She will be playing piano. She will be singing. We get to watch all these little kids perform and pretend that they are doing amazing. Okay, well, that's the spirit. Well, enjoy that. You might need some mama's juice to get through that, honestly. Holiday concerts of little kids, with all due respect. Even I might be looking around. I'd be like, hey, Christine, could I borrow one of those flasks you always talk about? for that event like the assembly or in the gymnasium or wherever it all takes place. Well, good luck. Uh, Perhaps we can check in on how that went. We can get a review from Christine. She'll probably say it was amazing, just like the recruit is so, so good. Similarly, this concert will be so, so good and impressive, and we'll get perhaps the full report tomorrow. During our home stretch on the Thursday edition of The Guy Benson Show, we will talk to you then. Have a great night. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.